Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. I'm all about like, hey, live your truth and make sure you're walking your talk. And, and the people who have misinterpretations, misconceptions, that's on them, that's not on you. I wanna live by the virtues and the principles of every great messenger and prophet that walked on this earth. And I wanna be a walking, living, and breathing example of someone who lives by those principles and virtues and not trying to act like, hey, this is the right thing, so let me preach about it. When you're exposed to an environment where you have complete safety and permission to be you 100% unapologetically without pretending to be someone that you're not, it allows you to really discover your unique voice and what your truth is. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Yaya Bakar. I love saying his name, Yaya Bakar. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at Yaya Bakar. There, I said it again. I wanted to have Yaya on the show because he's the best person I know of to help you refine your story and get it out to the world in a compelling way. The thing was... I wasn't really sure I liked him from what I saw on the internet, if I'm being completely honest with you. He's super over the top, but people kept telling me, man, you gotta meet him. He's he's your people, you will love him. He's got a message that is so helpful for people that are trying to get their story out to the world that you really need to connect with him. So I reached out for the interview and I was blown away by his story and how he got to where he is now in his life. Speaking of getting from where you are to where you want to be, the fastest way that I know to do that is a mastermind. And I have completely reimagined the traditional mastermind and I made it a hell of a lot more interesting. So check this out. Imagine joining my high-level tribe of entrepreneurs truffle hunting in Italy, or being part of white nights in St. Petersburg, Russia, or going to Harvard for a lecture. That's the kind of things that I'm gonna be doing with my mastermind this year, beginning in March. So, you know, look, I spent the last 10 years of my life making money, but I wasn't fulfilled. Those days for me are over. I realize that I get my best business ideas when I travel, and not when I'm sitting in front of a computer screen. I just, it, it never happens that way for me. It's always when I'm out in the world. So I decided to create a mastermind that will simulate the experience that I know is gonna help entrepreneurs. So if you're a mid six to seven figure entrepreneur, then this is probably for you. Head over to workhardplayhardpodcast.com forward slash masterminds and fill out the application. So The mastermind is not for someone that wants to be sitting in a hotel conference room. We're gonna be out seeing the world and stepping into a ton of new experiences to stimulate new thinking. So if the idea of being in St. Petersburg, Russia freaks you out, then maybe you should consider it because it's in that freak out where growth happens. I'm doing interviews now to find the best mix of personalities, ambition, 
and skill sets in diverse businesses. Just go to workhardplayhardpodcast.com forward slash mastermind. Again, it's workhardplayhardpodcast.com forward slash mastermind. Fill out an application. I'd love to jump on a call with you to see if it's a good fit. Okay, in this conversation, we talk about everything from what growing up in Mecca, Saudi Arabia was like, what it was like to then be sent to New Jersey to live with one of his dad's 10 wives, which was not his mother. We also talked about what it was like for him later in life to go find his mother. And then finally, we talked about what led him to becoming one of the best storytelling coaches on the planet. You can find him on the socials at Yaya Bakar. Be sure to take a screenshot of this episode, share it on the socials, and remember to tag me and Yaya and let us know what you thought. If it's your first time here and you have not subscribed, just say, hey, Siri, subscribe to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast, and it'll do it. Isn't that crazy? It'll do it. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with Yaya Bakar. Yaya, welcome to the show. Woo, I am pumped, my man. Thank you so much for having me. You know, we were just speaking offline here and I said, I never, ever have to worry about this man being pumped because, uh, I mean, I don't even, I actually didn't take coffee today because I knew I was doing this with you. <laughs> That's great. I love it. You got the Yaya, the Yaya juices in your system. You got it. So I want to uh, officially welcome you to the show. You know, I've been looking forward to this for a long time and, and here's why. There are certain people in the world that everybody just sort of tangentially will say the same name. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem to matter what circle I'm in, what party, what events, your name always comes up. Oh, so wow. I said, I got to I gotta pull this guy into my circle and bring him on the podcast. So I am super grateful uh, with your crazy schedule that you had time to do this. Thank you, man. And honestly, it's it's a pleasure and honor to be able to serve and, and give back in this way. And and just know, I know we we've known each other for quite some time, seen seen our journeys evolve over time. And it's just like I just love what you're doing, what you're about, and what you stand for. So honestly, it's it's a it's a honor to serve you. Thanks, man. So I thought what we would do is we'd talk a little bit first about your background because I really believe that that informs who we are, the decisions that we make, etc. And then we'll move into a little bit about the kind of work that you're doing currently and how you're serving and helping people. And then we'll talk a little bit about the play part of your life. I know you haven't, you've recently welcomed a new baby to the world. I want to talk yeah. about that. So we'll kind of go into things. So I think a good starting out point would be to take you back to April 15th, 1989 in Mecca, Saudi Arabia, where you were born. Do you have any strong memories growing up there until you were, say, five? Uh, to be honest, no. It, it was very, very hard. And I don't know if that's like a, you know, I need to go see a therapist because of that or I've suppressed it in my psychology. But I, I don't. All I, all I remember based on what I've learned over the years is that uh, I was born to a Muslim Syrian father and to a Buddhist Thai mother who converted to Islam in the holy land of the world for Muslims all around the world, Mecca. And they split up a few months after I was born. All right. So we're going to get, we're going to get into all of that. I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to drill down a little bit. You know, I was in, I don't remember which country I was in, but 
on it seemingly, I think it was in Morocco, seemingly every television station, it must have been during Ramadan, they were walking around that big box in yeah, Mecca. Yeah, the black box, for, the Kaaba. Okay, for, forgive the ignorance, um, but oh, I'm fine. just... I'm just a white guy from Queens. You know what I mean? Like, I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know much about it, but I, I felt so uninformed because I literally didn't even know there was a place called Mecca. I right. didn't know that there was a pilgrimage to Mecca and I didn't know that they walked around the box. Yep. Was that part of your life and lifestyle as a, as a youth? Yeah, bro. Um, so for so some context, I was born about a block away from that from that box, right? No so I was kidding. literally at the hospital. I was, that's where Mecca is. That's where I was like literally right there. And my dad, he, uh, he has a, um, a pilgrimage. He has a travel agency where he helps Muslims get through that once in a lifetime pilgrimage, whether it's Hajj, they call it Hajj or it's Umrah. Like for every Muslim, uh, it's, it's considered an honor and obligation, like a duty for them to at least pil- like pilgrimage down there, like do that as once in their lives. So that was a huge part of my life all the way up until I was like uh, 20 years old. You know, I went through, uh, I went through like a religious, religious crisis where I was trying to find what my version of my truth was outside of what my dad wanted me to believe and what I was, I was brought up in. Um, And so there was a huge shift from there, but it was a huge part of my life. Till this day, my dad owns a travel agency for Hajj and Umrah, where he takes a lot of uh, people, U.S. citizens, people from all around the world, into Mecca for that pilgrimage. So, so to say that it was a huge part of my life uh, would be an understatement because it was bigger. It was like it's the way of life for my father. Like that was that's how his whole life was about, and that's how I grew up in until I was five. When I was five, I flew out. My dad got married to his third wife, and she was a U.S. citizen, and. Uh, She's from Iraq originally, but she's the one that brought me into America. And I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey. And so I actually left Mecca when I was five years old to grow up in New Jersey. So your dad is obviously a very religious Muslim um, who was married 10 times. What do you think the misconceptions are about multiple marriages and that whole world? Yeah, to, to be honest, like I know in the Islamic faith, you're allowed to have... Uh, for you know, four wives at the same time, it's like a, um, a polygamous uh, arrangement. But the 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 purpose of that, it wasn't like you know, a lot of people have this misconception. It's like, oh man, like men are sh- you know chauvinistic and like they're just players or whatever, whatever, whatever. They just love sex all the time. Um, that wasn't the intent behind that. The intent behind that was uh, during the wars back way way back in the day when there were wars. There were a lot of men who were married who died and they had you know the the women were left with the children and there were no one to take care of it so it was part of the 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 culture to say like hey this is one of your duties as a muslim man is to take care of the woman who don't who don't have a provider or a protector so that was the intent but it's it's like everything else over time it gets misconstrued people don't understand the context or the intent behind it um with my dad it, it wasn't so much of a religious thing. I think it was more of like a lack of emotional maturity. Like he he didn't know how to maintain a relationship. There were you know there were probably childhood wounds that he couldn't heal or haven't hasn't healed over time, and that's what contributed to the multiple marriages throughout the years. 
So yeah, I, I would say it was like out, a little outside of the culture because most people in my in in the religion aren't like that. You know, like even people within the culture, are like damn, he got married actually eleven times, not ten. So it's eleven times, and this was his eleventh divorce. So I, I think it's just it's just something that he hasn't healed, and he's still he's still going through his journey. You know, his process of trying to figure that out. Okay, so he's on the eleventh wife, but they're not simultaneous. <laughs> No, no, no. It's not like uh, simultaneous. No, my grandfather had two wives at the same time, but my father didn't. So even though he tried, uh, he tried many times, yeah. Okay, so you alluded to earlier about how you wound up in Patterson. Maybe you can unpack that a little bit. What were the circumstances that led you to move to Patterson and be raised by your dad's third wife? So yeah, my dad got married. So I have a sister who I've never met from my dad's second wife, and I think she's still in Syria. We've tried to have a conversation, but that's that's kind of been like MIA because of what's been going on in Syria and just like the culture clash. But he got married again, his, his third wife, and she was a U.S. citizen, but she's from Iraq originally. And uh, she noticed that my dad was struggling. Like my dad had me when he was 20 years old. And uh, he married my biological mother, who was 10 years his senior. So he like being a single dad struggling, trying to make ends meet, she's, she basically said with her open hearts, like, listen, I'll take care of Yaya for you. Um, I know you're trying to, you know, build the business and take care of the family and everything like that. So how about he just fly in and come to America and I'll take care of him. So basically I, I never knew who she was. I just flew in from on the plane by myself when I was five years old. It was like a 14 hour flight from Saudi Arabia to New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey. And then I got to see this lady who became my, my mom, my stepmom. And, uh, and to be honest, it was, it was kind of like a shock for me because one, I didn't speak any English. I was only speaking Arabic at the time. And two, I was kind of like, I always felt like I didn't know where I belonged. You know, like, where was my mom? What's going on with my dad? What does my dad want me? You know, who's this person? Now I have to fit in her family. They don't know me. There were, there, you know, there were judgments from the family about my mom doing something like my stepmom doing something like this. So early on, I had to figure out how to adapt and to survive as a coping mechanism to fit in. And so it, it was a little bit awkward, but thankfully, and I'm very, very grateful to say this, like she loved me the best that she could throughout it, you know? Um, and I, I felt like I'm, I'm glad that I had that grounding anchor and support throughout it all. So, yeah. You know, um, it's interesting because, you know, we, we just can only use our own lens um, when we think about places, you know, we hear Saudi. I was in Greece this summer and uh, I was on the beach and this, you know, really cool couple, we were just, uh, the, the kids were, they had uh, a baby about uh, my Sophia's age, about three years old. And, you know, we were just talking about, I said, where are you from? And they said, uh, Saudi Arabia. And I said, so, you know, after a couple of cocktails, I said, you know, I got to ask you a question. I'm, I'm here with my wife. She's wearing a bikini. Your wife's wearing a bikini. You know, we're doing shots on the beach, but is this like this at home? And he's like, Hell no. Yeah. And so I, I said, like, you know, Friday night, I said, do you mind if I ask you some questions? He goes, no. I said, Friday night, you know, you want to go out for Mexican food. Can you do it? Have a couple of drinks? He said, well, we have a couple of drinks and go for Mexican food, but we don't do it in Saudi. I said, where do you go? He said, we get in the car and we drive to Bahrain. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you're kidding me. I said, what about your wife? Can she drive? He goes, now she can. But if you asked me that question last year, no. Yeah, yeah. So when you hear stories like this from the place that you're from, how does how does it feel? You know, like I have a background, my family's from Italy. So when I go back to Italy, I, I kind of connect to, you know, Naples where they're from. Right. But how does it feel for you because your world is so much in current events 
And it's so restrictive in so many ways. Does that, do you think people just get it wrong or or do you connect to it? Does it feel weird? Just kind of unpack that for me. I honestly feel disconnected to my culture, but I I have empathy and understanding for it Mm. because I I also feel like there are, and just just to be very, very clear, and I just want to set the record straight, I am not against the Islamic faith or everything. I have very close family and friends who I don't, I don't uphold any religious faith. Now I'm a very spiritual person, but I don't label myself uh, like a Christian or a Buddhist or a Hindu or anything like that. But I, I will say I have a lot of empathy for people who are genuine believers in what they believe in, whatever their faith is, but they feel misunderstood. And that could go for Islam that can go for people who are Christian. I just heard someone say who's a very de- like devout Christian and you know loves Jesus and like she feels ashamed sometimes sharing that out loud to the public. And I'm I'm all about like hey live your truth and make sure you're walking your talk. And and the people who have misinterpretations misconceptions that's on them. That's not on you. And I do feel like unfortunately there is a lot of misperception you know assumptions about especially Islam, you know, maybe people think like, hey, you know, these are just a bunch of terrorists and all that kind of stuff. And I had to see my younger brother, I'm the oldest of seven brothers and sisters, they have to grow up with that, you know, and I have to constantly remind them like, hey, like wear your heart on your sleeve, sister, if you're wearing a hijab, like wear that proudly, even though I might feel differently about that. So I am a stand for anybody who can can honor their faith from a place of integrity because it is their true faith and their belief and this is what they believe in. But I am against people who uh, accuse, assume, or attack a person's creed, culture, or uh, color, or religion, or you know, just because of misperception or ignorance, if you yeah. will. So, so, there, so there is disconnect, meaning like I don't, I don't, when somebody brings it up and says, oh, how do you feel about Islam? Like, honestly, me genuinely, I mean, I, I don't, I'm going to uphold that faith because I'm more of a spiritual person, but I have empathy and understanding for people of faith, regardless of what label they choose to uphold, whether it's, it's you're a Muslim or a Christian, a Jew, a Hindu, a Buddhist, or even an atheist, right? So it's like, um, so that's where my empathy and understanding comes from. Well, you know, things have changed quite a bit for you. You know, if we fast forward a bit to around 14 years old, um, you were working really, really hard to please your dad. You wanted to be a good oh, yeah. Muslim. You were praying five times a day. You even broke up with your now wife, Kate, um, yeah. because Muslims weren't allowed to date. What yeah. was that time in your life like for you at 14? So imagine living in the shadow and walking on eggshells 24-7, pretending to be someone that you're not just to win the acceptance and approval of someone who you feel should love you but doesn't unless it's very conditional. Mm-hmm. That's what it felt like in a nutshell. So it was very, very exhausting. Um, you know, my father was the only blood person I knew. When I say blood, like he was my biological father. Everyone else was like my stepmother. She wasn't my blood. She, she, I didn't know who my mother was. I didn't know anything. So like for me, the bond that I had with my father was something that I didn't want to jeopardize at all at whatever cost. And so when I, you know, like there was a point, as you said, when I was 14, I became very, very religious. Like I broke up with my, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, but I broke up with her because, you know, I said like, listen, I'm going to be a devout Muslim. I'm going to be a sheikh. You know, I wanted my dad to be proud, yada, yada, yada. And it was through her love that she kind of like said, Hey, then teach me your ways. And I was like, okay. So I started reading every night, even though we were still broken up, I just got on a call with her every night after school and I would read her the Quran. 
And we would go back and forth about what, you know, she grew up in a, in a Protestant and Catholic upbringing. So she went to Bible school and she would tell me what she learned through Bible school. There's a quote by Rumi, who's a Sufi poet. He says, there's a field beyond wrong and right. I'll meet you there. <laughs> and, and I feel like that described our relationship between Kate and I, because initially I was always trying to prove myself right and how she was wrong. Right. This is what she was taught to believe. This is what I was taught to believe. And this is why this is the ultimate truth. And then I just asked myself, like, holy shit, if I grew up in a different upbringing with a different family at a different time with a different faith, like, would I be as 100% as confident and as convincing that this is the ultimate truth like I would be right now? And the answer, the, the honest answer was, I don't know. So that opened me up into a world of, again, wisdom, perspective, understanding to learn about, you know, the, the, the Christian faith. And so I read the King James version of the Bible back and forth, you know, and then I read the Tibetan book of the dead, which is the Buddhist book. Then I read the Bhagavad Gita, which is the Hindu book. Then I read the Torah and the Talmud all at the ages of like 15, 16, 17 years old, which opened me up to the world of different perspectives, right? I got to appreciate other people. And to be honest, I think my journey towards religion and spirituality was was a deeper desire to understand my relationship with my mother and my father because there was a conflicting relationship there from the begin with. You know, like my dad was Muslim and I was born in the Holy Land. My mother was initially a Buddhist and then she converted to Islam. So I felt like I wanted to understand that aspect of myself too. So it, it was it went a, it was like a roundabout way to the point where I finally came to terms with my own spirituality with my own truth and what that meant for me, which was I want to live by the virtues and the principles of every great messenger and prophet that, that you know, walked on this earth. And I want to be a, a walking, living, and breathing example of someone who lives by those principles and virtues and not trying to act like, hey, this is the right thing, so let me preach about it, right? That's what, that was my, my truth. But even though that was still my truth and I was comfortable with it behind closed doors, I, would, I didn't have the courage to tell my father until I was 25 years old. You know, I would give anything for a 23 and me on you. Do you know what that is? No. So a, 20, a 23 and me is a genetic profile. You basically spit into this thing. It's the hottest thing now. Everybody's doing it. So 23 you spit, and me. 23 and me, you got to do it. It's a couple hundred bucks, maybe 150 bucks. And um, you just send the saliva sample off. And within probably about six weeks, you'll get a report back of your DNA. Mm. It will be remarkable for wow. you to see the Saudi Thai connection and yeah. where you, you should do it today. It is everybody I've done this with has been absolutely blown away because you have this, you have the best of, if I look at you, you are this beautiful mix of Saudi Thai and Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I love that. Like that's so great. I swear to God, you really are. It's kind of freakish. It's that's kind awesome. of like you, you. <laughs> you really are that. Okay, so um, you made some academic decisions as you got a little bit older. And I'd like to touch on it just a little bit before we talk about the kind of work you do. Can yeah. you walk us through why you made some of those academic decisions, starting with Arizona State? then moving to Maharashi University and then pivoting to become one of the youngest graduates in the Tony Robbins coaching program and, you know, getting certificates in strategic interventionists and relationship educator. Like walk us through how that journey happened. 
Okay, before we do that, I just got to acknowledge you for a second. I'm blown away by how much you know about me. It's kind of <laughs> freakish right now. The level of research you've done, bro, I've been on a bunch of interviews. I am blown away by your accuracy here, right? Like, like kudos to you, man. You're freaking amazing. Thank, thank so, you. so just, I just wanted to acknowledge you. So yes, um, when I graduated high school, mind you, I'm still, you know, still going through my journey and stuff like that. Kate and I, we we were doing a, uh, Kate and I was my girlfriend at the time, is now my wife. We did a long distance relationship. So actually I left New Jersey when I was 16 to go to Arizona to move with my stepmom. Her whole family moved to stepmom. And so I decided to live with her. And uh, after I graduated high school, I wanted to become a personal trainer. But I told my stepmom and my father that I wanted to become a personal trainer because I'm the first person in my family to ever get an education in America. They're like, no, that's not possible. Personal trainers don't make any money. You should become like either a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, right? So I was like, okay. I felt the family pressure was strong. I was like, let me just become a doctor. I got a full scholarship to Arizona State University. Was in it for a couple of months, was taking my prerequisites. I wasn't feeling, feeling it, to be honest. And when I was back home in my mom's house, my stepmom's house, I was reading, uh, I was reading a chemistry book to prepare for a test. And I'm on the phone with Kate, you know, again, we're doing long distance. So she's in Jersey, I'm in Arizona. I'm on the phone. I'm like, yo, babe, like, this is so stupid. I don't understand why I'm studying so hard just to get a piece of, a piece of A on a paper. Like, what does that mean? Like, I'm going to forget half the stuff that I'm studying so hard for. It's a waste of my time. And then she was like, well, what are you passionate about? And I look at my bookshelf. And since I was 14, as you know, I was reading books on religion, spirituality, personal development, health and fitness, anything that can help me become the best version of myself and help me come more alive. So I was like, for kicks and giggles, I went on Google and I typed in personal development and spiritual school. And I found this website that came up called mum.edu, Maharishi University of Management. The headline is what really captured my attention. And it said, self-actualization through through consciousness-based education. I didn't know what that meant, but to me, like I interpreted it as become the best version of yourself by discovering who you really are. And I was like, oh, I had chills all over my body. Long story short, I went to go visit the school. They had a visitor's weekend. They paid me to go visit the school. I visited it. And I was like, this is freaking dope. So I went back to Arizona and I was like, I'm, I think I'm going to leave my full scholarship that I got from Arizona State University, leave my stepmom, and I'm going to just kind of like go all in and go into this school in Iowa where there's just a bunch of corns and cows and it's like hippieville. So I did that. When you're exposed, let me just say this, when you're exposed to an environment where you have complete safety and permission to be you 100% unapologetically without pretending to be someone that you're not, it allows you to really discover your unique voice and what your truth is. And so when I was there, I had a lot of time to do a lot of self-work and self-discovery. And so despite the fact that I have $50,000 of debt and I'm about one semester left until I was supposed to graduate with my bachelor's degree to take my MCATs and my DATs to become a doctor, I said, I'm done. I left. And my guidance counselor thought I was stupid at the time. Everybody thought I was making a foolish and a naive decision. And then I moved to, I went to New Jersey where my girlfriend was staying, Kate was staying, and my father was staying at the time. And then when I t- knocked on the door, oldest of seven brothers and sisters, my youngest, my youngest brothers and sisters greeted me. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I told my dad, I was like, hey, listen, I'm not going to become a doctor. My dad was pissed off. He was very, very disappointed. I wasn't allowed to stay in the house any longer. And one of my friends who's actually from Naples as well, he just, he, he's from uh, Italy. 
he heard about my situation and he was like, hey, bro, why don't you just stay in my house until you can get yourself together? And I was like, okay, thanks. So I stayed at his house. And the first night that I was there, his family welcomed me. His mom was a little resistant, but you know, she still welcomed me. When I was there, I went into his room. He didn't have a, like a frame under his bed. It's just a mattress on the floor. And I'm thinking like, man, I should really just go back and finish what I started, get my degree. Everything would be okay. And then my friend, his name is Mike. He's like, I think you should become like a motivational speaker and life coach for young people. And I was like, bro, that's a dumb idea. Like I wouldn't even take my own advice. And he's like, listen, you're a positive guy with a big ass mouth. You should put it to use. And I was like, all right, fine. I'll sleep on it. So I slept on it. Next day, I went on Google and I typed in motivational speaking and life coaching programs. And I find two programs. One is a speaker program to teach people how to become speakers um, in the education market, specifically if you want to speak to students, teachers, parents, and counselors. And then the other was a, to- a Tony Robbins program called Robbins and Madonna's Training. And I look at both of the programs and combined, it was a total of $9,000. And in my mind, I'm like, I don't have $9,000. I have $50,000 of debt. You know, I have no degree, no job. I'm staying in my friend's house and I only have 47 bucks in my checking account. Like, where am I going to get this? And I saw a video by Tony Robbins that day that said, it's not about the resources. It's about the resourcefulness. Burn, you know, burn the boats and take the island. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to go all in and figure out a way to make this happen. Got super resourceful, made a bunch of cold calls. Out of like 100 calls, only two people believed in me. They gave me about 4,000 bucks. I got two jobs as a waiter and a chiropractor's assistant. And I use all that money to invest it back into these coaching programs to build my speaking, my coaching career. And within one year, I had a full-time speaking career. I had over 40 speaking engagements, paid speaking engagements. Uh, I quit both of my jobs. I was the youngest graduate in Tony Robbins coaching program. And then in 2012, I became student of the year at this uh, speaking program that I was at. And then I became dean of students for the speaker, uh, speaker program, teaching other aspiring speakers how to become successful speakers in that niche. And my career just basically took off to the point where in 2016, I had my most successful year speaking with over 120 speaking engagements. I had a tour in Malaysia, a three-week tour in Malaysia. I was in Amsterdam. I was in London. In the education market, I became well-known in the education market. And I wanted to build a family. And I know like that, that route of being a speaker, trading my time for money on stage, wasn't going to cut it if I wanted to also be there to build a family that I never had growing up. And so that was a transition for me. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the kind of work that you're doing now. You know, like we've just been talking about, you've spoken on, oh God, over 500 stages from Harvard to Georgia Institute of Technology, TEDx. Do you've used the word motivational speaker, but I know sometimes people don't like that word. Do you consider yourself a motivational speaker? Well, from from a business standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, you always want to describe what you do in the language that people understand, mm-hmm. right? So cl- clarity over complexity or creativity, right? So whether I perceive myself as a motivational speaker or not is irrelevant. The question is, who does my buyer see me as and what are they looking for? So the, 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 the motivational speaking route, like when I was a motivational speaker, that's the language that my buyer was looking like using at the time. So I use that, you know, do I see myself as a motivational speaker? No, I see myself as, you know, uh, an influencer, a thought leader, um, you know, a game changer, a world-class leader. Like I see myself as those things, but that's not the language that they're using. So, uh, and, and to be honest, like 
one of the reasons why I shifted from speaking in the education market, I retired back in, at the end of 2017 from speaking there full time. Uh, and I shifted into helping other thought leaders become world-class speakers and build profitable personal brands. The reason why I shifted there is because I felt like the speaking industry, if you're not careful and you're, you don't, you're not aware of it, it can box you in. A great example, I think speaking is something that I do. It's not something that I am, right? I'm not a speaker, right? It's, it's not an identity that I uphold. Who I am is so much bigger than that. Uh, and that's why, I, and I always felt that way, but I didn't, I didn't have the language or the context to understand that. Now I understand that um, there are a lot of coaches out there who are listening to this. There are a lot of successful entrepreneurs who are listening to this. There are a lot of you know uh, aspiring authors or existing authors or influencers right now with big followers. Like the way I call us that these people, you guys are thought leaders. You have a mind, you have a mouth, and you want to monetize your knowledge, your expertise, your advice, your know-how uh, in a way that can transform somebody's life or business or relationship. You're a thought leader, uh, whatever industry that you're in or niche. And I feel like. As a thought leader, it is your duty to build your personal brand because that is your competitive edge in the marketplace. Because at the end of the day, people buy people. They don't, they don't buy you for your service. And if they only buy you for your service, then you're a commodity. You're not a celebrity, right? And at the end of the day, like within our market, people will pay more for someone they perceive as a celebrity, right? Regardless of whether we, we want to admit that that's right or wrong, it is what it is in our current game today, right? So... So this is kind of like where I'm at and this is how I shifted. And I feel like it is my duty to pay what I've invested in, in the almost a decade worth of experience of mentors, masterminds, programs in the thought leadership, information, internet marketing space to kind of say like, hey, here's a simpler way to do all of this. Here's a step-by-step -step way to do all of this. you know, And here's the fastest way to do all of this without building an expensive hobby or trading your time for money. So if you do want to become a speaker, there is a strategic way to do that. If you do want to become a coach, there is a strategic way to do that. If you want to be, build your own show and become a celebrity personal brand, there is a way that you can do that without stressing yourself out. Because you know, sometimes we see people out there in, in the game, the Gary V's, the Lewis houses, the Chris Hardis, the Robs, the Yaya's, the whoever it may be, the Oprah Winfrey, the Tony Robbins. And we look at it from the back, like from the front back. So we see like, oh, that's what they're doing. So that's what I need to be doing when I'm, I look at it from the, like, begin with the end in mind and reverse engineer the process to seeing like, what did they do before we got to see them as what they are today? Now, how can we implement that? So, sorry, I went on a rant because no, I'm obviously no, very passionate I, about this. But you were dropping, you were, I was dropping the microphone. Knowledge bombs were exploding. I mean, the whole thing. This was. This, <laughs> I got. An, I got. We can end it right here. I mean, I got enough. That was really, really powerful. Why do you think motivation only lasts for a few days after somebody hears? A talk, you know, there's a lot of people now, you and I just, um, at the time we we're recording this, we just recently were at a Lewis House Summit of Greatness event and we, yep. you know, heard some amazing speakers and, you know, we're pumped up and excited and this is, you know, this is going to be a good week for a lot of people to take action on things. But three weeks from now, you know, a lot of people just kind of forget where they were and they get back and they get stimulated by their environment and blah, blah, blah. Why do you think, yeah. you know, that it just doesn't last? Like, how do you, why do you think it doesn't last and how do you get it to last? Well, I don't think you could get motivation to last, period. Because I, I think people need a proper context in understanding the, the value of motivation. Motivation is like a spark. Motivation is like blowing air in a balloon. All right, eventually it's going to deflate. 
Motivation gets you started. Commitment keeps you going. Discipline gets things done, mm. right? So there's a difference in, in, in there. And I think what most people are desperately seeking, but they're not willing to invest their time, their energy, or their money into is commitment and discipline. So a great example is in the health and fitness space. You know, a lot of coaches experience this, right? You get people who are motivated in the beginning of the year to lose weight, get in shape, new year, new goals, yada, 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 new you, right? And they're relying on motivation. They go buy the sneakers, they buy their clothes, they're like, that's it. Cool. It got you going. Like it got you started to go to the gym, right? Like in the beginning. Now you got to say, okay, motivation has served its place. It sparked something in me. Now, what is the next step? Oh, commitment. Commitment is what keeps you going. And commitment is the unsexy part, right? And I think I think if motivation makes you feel good and it's like the stuff that people desire to kind of, it's like caffeine, right? Like commitment is like, okay, I just got to do the unsexy work. Let me just bite the bullet. This is me showing up behind the scenes uh, and like just staying consistent with the process, right? And then discipline is like, okay, cool. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to get it done, period, regardless of how I feel. So shifting your sense of value from motivation and slowly transitioning into commitment and discipline and honoring that. So for, for those people who are looking for a motivational speaker, I know they're looking for a temporary fix. For people who are looking for a serious coach and are willing to put their money where their mouth is, I know they're looking for a serious transformation. Got it. And then they can step into the commitment and the discipline that it requires. Yeah, got it. A hundred percent. All right. So I'd like to touch on a couple of things here. One of the things, and and I know that this is probably um, a giant question. So just, just hit the low hanging fruit here, but you, you also work with people who want to be better speakers. And one of the things that you teach is an acronym called ALIVE, authentic, likable, influential, vulnerable, and empathetic. Can you kind of just hit the highlights there, what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So my name in Arabic actually means alive. So, um, and I do my best to live up to my name. And what I found was that a lot of the clients that I was working with, they were looking for perfection. And what I've noticed is from my own experience as a speaker, I'm not the best speaker in the world. Like I, I know uh, I could count thousands of speakers who are 10 times better than me. But what I will say is that when I get up on stage, on camera, whatever, I do my best to be as authentic as transparent, as vulnerable, as empathetic, as influential, or as likable as possible, you know, being true to who I am, right? So, so what I think what more people are looking for when you get up on stage, when you're presenting on camera or you're doing a webinar, whatever, whatever it is that you're doing, they're just looking for you to become more alive, right? They're, they're not looking for a performance. They're looking for presence. They're not looking for perfection. They're looking for a conversation. So as you express yourself and you bring the real you to the table, like, it, it cuts through the fluff. It cuts through the, 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 that noise in your head, that inner critic that's like, oh, I wonder what these people are going to think of me, all that kind of stuff. And the truth is, if you're not alive, you're not authentic, you're not likable, you're not influenced, you're not vulnerable, you're not empathetic, and they can't connect to you, then you're going to come off dead in front of them, which is stands for D-E-A-D, disappointing, embarrassing, annoying, and dreadful to watch and listen to. Because they, they know, they know that when you get up on stage, you're seeking applause and approval and another form of validation where the people who are alive, they're not looking for that. They're seeking to add value by bringing their unapologetic self to the table. They're saying, here I am, take me or leave me, but this is the real me. Now you get to love me or hate me. Like that's it. So, and I think that's very, very, 
attractive. Like people really are drawn to that, especially this day and age. We we want people who are very, very transparent. We want people who are very, very authentic. We want people who are very, very vulnerable so that we can know, like, and trust them more. So we feel like we're not being taken advantage of. That's what we're looking for. So my whole thing for anybody who's listening to this, whether you want to become a speaker, whether you are a leader or an influencer, or a CEO, a business owner, whether you have your own show, is give yourself permission to be imperfect in public. Please do so. Because when you do that, other people are going to feel safer around you and they feel more alive when they connect with you. Now there's a connection. Now there's chemistry. Now there's transparency. And, and that's what's going to move the needle for not just your brand, but your business and your relationships at the end of the day. I love it. You know, you also talk about the perfection trap versus the curse of knowledge. What do you mean there? <laughs> Bro, I'm going to make this really simple. We live in an age of infobesity. All right. Mm-hmm. We're struggling with too much freaking information. And sometimes that information Uh, The pursuit of that information, the consumption of that information is just another mask of uh, like a mask in disguise, another uh, mask of busyness, not productiveness, where we can kind of like uh, fall behind in our pursuit of perfection. Like we're saying, oh, I'm just I'm one. Once I get a certification, then I can share this. Once I consume more knowledge, then I can do this. And what I'm saying is, again, Give yourself permission to be imperfect in public. People are not looking for that. People are looking for someone that they can connect to. So the perfection trap is realizing that you don't like you don't have to be perfect in order to help someone. You don't have to be perfect in order to get paid. Like get paid to practice right now. If doctors can do it, aka they call it private practice, if they can do it, so can you. So give yourself permission to practice imperfectly in public. Right. Mm. And so like that's 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 what I want people to hear from me when they when they see Yaya doing 365 videos a day, like a video a day when he hates it and he feels like pulling teeth out of his mouth. Like I'm trying to symbolize an example an imperfectly like a perfectly imperfect example of like, hey, it's okay to show up, wear your heart on your sleeve and not have everything figured out. And trust me, that will go a long way, too, with your audience. The perfection, the production quality, the production value, that will come later on. But you don't need that right now to get started. You don't need more certifications after your name to get start started. Like at the end of the day, people, when they hire you or they want to work with you, all they're really, really looking for is number one, can I trust you? And number two, can I get results from you? That's it. I love it. You know, our mutual friend, Lori Harder, uh, once said to me, Rob Dunn is better than perfect. Yes. So freaking true. So freaking true. I got that tattooed on my ass right now. That's really, really good. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Yeah. All right. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to move in sort of the uh, the play hard part of your life. The first, you know, the show is called Work Hard, Play Hard. We talk about work and the kind of things that you do after we talk about your background. But I also want to talk about play because what are we doing all this for? You know, a lot of entrepreneurs are super driven and they just don't take the time to play. So I want to ask you a couple of questions on that part of your life. What does a typical Saturday morning look like for you? Family time, bro. Family. My play is enjoying my time with Kate and my daughter, Kaya, who is currently seven months old uh, of this recording. Just like... Speaking of play, man, I, I used to be afraid. My biggest fear was 
the reason why I was afraid to become a father was simply because I was afraid of repeating the patterns of dysfunction and immaturity that that I learned growing up with my role models, you know, as parents. And so that was a big fear, but I can't tell you how much of having having a an amazing daughter has unleashed my inner child and unlocked my innocence in being playful and in, in reminding me of being present and reminding me of, of what's important at the end of the day. Like that to me, like I, I selfishly want to be around my daughter as much as possible because she, she reminds me to love my inner child. She reminds me to lo- like, just be a kid again around her. You know, so like that to me is my typical Saturday is spending family day with my wife and my daughter. And so, yeah, that's it. I love it. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? At home with my family, Mm. because I want to, I want to build the home that I've never had growing up. And I want to build a family that I've always wanted uh, growing up. And so like, honestly, like my big vision in in three to five years from now is to live in a Mediterranean mansion by the beach with my family. And I want my home that feels like a home for not just my family, but my clients, my friends, my colleagues, the celebrities I plan on working with and the influencers. Like I want to create a safe space where they can feel seen and heard. And like that is the underlying mission behind everything that I do. That is what wakes me up. That is what fires me up. Like I do, I I like when I say feel seen and heard, when I say show up and be seen, that's not just like from a professional level, that's on a personal level on how we show up in our intimate lives and our relationships with our partners and our, our, our family and friends. So like, that's, that's what I would do. I would spend that month being exactly where I'm at and not, not change it for anything. Maybe, maybe, maybe have like a nice Tesla or nice cars and like a nice beach in front of me, but that's about it. (laughs) The Mediterranean style home, is that a home in the Mediterranean or a home where you live now that, that is a Mediterranean style? That a home where I would live now where that it's a Mediterranean style. It's like, I I like the, the beach lifestyle. Like Mm -hmm. I noticed, like I currently live in Jersey and my wife and I have been going back and forth and, and moving into a tropical location very, very soon. So, so like that's, that's, part of my vision, you know, Where would you um, I, uh, either, either like Fort Lauderdale, Florida, mm-hmm. um, or just somewhere tropical, right. We've been setting our eyes in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, not necessarily Miami because it's too lively for us. And we want to like, it's not necessarily like a family scene for us, but Fort Lauderdale, it's like the best of East coast flair, like East coast swag, like this, the speed of East coast. Um, but the lifestyle of the West coast. Well, that's, when you show up there, it's going to increase the hurricane level. So we better be careful. I'll try to ground it with my energy. I know, right? <laughs> if, you, if you could only go to one restaurant before you die, where would it be? Where would your last meal be? Dude, that's a great question. I don't know. I don't know if I could. There's there's a restaurant right down the street from where I live right now. It's called Frank's. And it's like an Italian family home, but they had this grilled chicken arugula salad and this Atlantic black salmon that is to die for. And they have this chicken noodle soup that's like, that feels like home every time you drink it. And so like, I, I like that would be the place that I would, I would consistently go to, you know what I'm saying? Um, I just, I just love it because that's my, my go-to. How much time are you taking off now to recharge and refocus either per week, per year, per day? How do you do that? So my, my current schedule right now is I wake up around five o'clock. I, I go to the gym. That's my me time. 
uh, come back home around seven, eight o'clock. And then I take care of my, my daughter. So we have daughter, da- daughter, daddy time. And that's between like eight to uh, 10 o'clock. And then from 11 to 12, I am kind of like grounding myself or meditating, recharging. That's like my own time. And then around 12 o'clock, I start, I start doing anything that that's work related from 12 to six o'clock currently. That might change as different variables are added into my life and different things change. But from 12 to six, that's like work time for me. Uh, whether I'm doing team meetings, I'm supporting clients through our calls and, where I have VIP days where clients fly out to come visit me. That's usually the the um, the slot. And then from six till nine, so from six to eight, that's family time. Then from eight to like nine thirty, that's Kate and Yaya time. So my wife and I time. So that's how the structure that I have. And I have it usually have do my best, not perfect, but I have a strong cutoff time at six o'clock when it comes to work. So and I, sometimes I give my wife my laptop to say or my phone to be like, hey, here, take it. I don't want to be distracted. Let's connect together. Or she's going to throw it out the window. Yeah, I get it. Exactly. Exactly. What's the one thing that you've always wanted to learn, but you just haven't gotten around to it yet? It's been a work in progress for me, but like, it's like mobility work, like mobility work and doing some deep psycho, not, not psychotherapeutic, but like mobility and body work. Like I feel like a lot of the coaching that I do, like because of the the, the trauma that I've went through, I've went through like a whole world of like therapy, emotional healing work, and I, I really believe, as one of my good friends Elliot Hull says, the body is the mind, and so I want to master the world of the body, and not just from a physical like, oh, I can do a handstand or I can do a a muscle up or I can do like things like that when it comes to the body, but also from a uh, a deeper subconscious or unconscious level of doing some very, very deep transformative work where healing the trauma within the body that people unconsciously contain without realizing it. Mm. And so like, that's something that I'm deeply passionate about that I've been doing behind the scenes. And I think that's what gives me a very unique perspective and edge when it comes to coaching some of my clients, because you'd be surprised if somebody has a, uh, a a big challenge expressing themselves or getting their point across, I can usually trace it back or track that energy blockage back to an emotional trauma that they haven't held, like uh, healed completely. And then all of a sudden, boom, once you deal with that, it's like you open up the floodgates on their emotional express expressiveness. Yeah. You know, it's so. kind of like the documentary we, we uh, screened together with Lewis House. Um, yes. <laughs> And I, I won't uh, I won't give away the punchline, but um, what he's describing is um, hopefully going to show up on Netflix. I don't know what it's called, yes. but you'll see it, and I think it's going to be incredible. What's something that has worked really well for you in your relationship with your wife to make the relationship better? It could be, you know, something small, just maybe one thing. It could be, you know, the date night. It could be a couples retreat. It could be a vacation. Like what? What if you had to like eighty twenty it or ninety ten it? What's yeah. the thing like if I when I do this thing, like our relationship just is better, and when I don't, it gets worse. Yeah. So so I would say three things, right? Number one is and, and I, I wanna I wanna frame what I'm about to say by by sharing this principle that Albert Albert Einstein once said. You can't solve a problem in the same way of thinking that you used to begin the problem with. Mm. And in in any relationship, whether it's personal or professional, you just gotta assume that there are gonna be problems as you grow, as the dynamics change in the relationship. So it's always good to have an outside perspective that is unbiased, whether that's in the form of 
professionally speaking as a mentor or an advisor, or personally speaking as a therapist or a counselor or someone like that. So that that is a, a non-negotiable for me. And I feel like that's the reason why we've been together for 15 years. She's my high school sweetheart. You know, we've been married for uh, almost five years and we have a baby, like, because I have that space. And that space also creates my the second. So let's say the first thing is a mentor or a therapist. The second thing is boundaries. Mm. I am a big believer that boundaries create balance. You need to have boundaries. And and the boundaries doesn't show up from just a emotional place where it's like, hey, don't say this, don't cross the line, but it's also creating boundaries within your schedule to block out and batch out the people that mean most to you. So we do have date nights. It's a work in progress. We're not perfect, but we do integrate that. Like Kate has her own selfish time. Let's saying like, babe, I need you to take care of yourself and stop trying to take care of me and Kaya because I, what makes me fucking come alive as a happy husband and as a man is seeing my wife feeling like completely in her feminine and feeling so alive and carefree. And I need you to take care of yourself for, for our, our uh, healthy dynamic. So that's it. So boundaries. And I would say the third thing would be just, we do this thing called oil checks every quarter in our relationship. We've done this for the last 15 years. We have a safe space where it's like, okay, time for us to check up. Full safe container. You can say whatever it is, the things that you're afraid to say because I might have been easily triggered and vice versa. We just can just like receive it without taking anything personally. And we do that. And I, I can't tell you how many times I thought that I couldn't love my wife any more or any deeper. And I was proven wrong and wrong time and time again because of the oil checks in our relationship. And I feel like having, having the outside perspective in the form of an advisor, a mentor, or a therapist, or just someone that we trust, right? Having the boundaries in place that we can place in our relationship and say, hey, this is date time, or hey, this is you time, hey, this is me time. And then also having, having uh, the, the, the part of us that can do the oil checks and, and realize that we're not fucking perfect. Like, the only reason why we can maintain and sustain the relationship that we have over the years is because we know that shit changes over time. And we, we want to have the emotional maturity to have the conversations that need to be, be had in order to keep the relationship uh, alive and, and going consistently. You know, And again, I, I always say this like, knowing that we're not perfect and we're still, a, we're, we're a masterpiece that's still a work in progress. Where do the oil checks happen? In the therapist's office or just at home or at a dinner or? Both, both. You know, a therapist is kind of consistent. So it could be like a, like twice a month, uh, twice a month thing, depending on, depending on like what are, what the new challenges are. So maybe if like, if, Sometimes I get too busy with my schedule and that's affecting our relationship. We might increase our, you know, the amount of time that we would see a therapist, right? Uh, sometimes we we kind of like revisit, kind of like, you know how like you might have quarterly meetings um, mm-hmm. where you, it, it, within a business, it's the same it's same exact thing. We kind of like revisit our, our, our relationship and saying like, okay, cool. Like, what is it that we can do to improve? And sometimes it's just between her and I initially. And then we make a conscious decision together to be like, okay, Let's maybe, here's a solution. Let's go see someone else. You know, Absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. All right, so we're going to hit the rapid fire round and then we're going to wrap up. These are kind of like a first thing that comes to mind round. What would your friends say 
is one of your superpowers? Authenticity. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? Not being true to myself. What keeps you up at night? Ah, uh, the the new challenges that I'm having with navigating a partnership and scaling a team. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? How are you feeling? What's the one thing that you want to get better at? Showing up and leading powerfully, both personally and professionally. What book have you reread the most? The Wisdom of the Enneagram. What's the one thing that you probably should throw out, but you never will? Mm, my ego. Wow. Wow. Really, really good. If you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for or nothing that you speak about, and it could be on anything that you like to do or have a passion for or anything else at all, what would it be? Oh, I don't, I don't know. That's tough. But it would be something along the lines of like family. Like I, I'm not known for speaking about family or mm -hmm. like as a topic for my expertise, but like I would, I would want to share from a place of experience to help people break the cycle of dysfunction. So if they, if they grew up in a very toxic, manipulative, unsupportive relationship or upbringing, I want to be, I want to share my story in a way to give other people permission to say like, oh, I, you know, the buck stops with me and I can Beautiful. redefine it. Beautiful. Last question. What one question do you want to ask me? Uh, ooh, that's a great question. How can I best support you? Hmm. Thank you for that. It's such a beautiful question. Uh, the best way you can support me would be by sharing anybody that you think uh, is imbalanced in their life with work versus play. I spent a big part of my life working, working, working. And now at 52 years old, I've realized that you know, if I live to be the average age, I probably have about 26 summers left um, and that God willing, they'll all be good. And you come to a point in your life where you just keep saying, you know, uh, someday, someday I'll do this and someday I'll do that. So if you know somebody that you believe would be good for the work hard, play hard mastermind, because we're about to launch it in two weeks, I'd love uh, for you to share them because... I love you. And uh, I'm sure if you love them, they'll be a good fit. Absolutely, bro. Yeah, my word. I got your back. I cannot thank you enough. Uh, do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? So one, I just want to acknowledge you. I said it in the middle of this interview. You're you're just a phenomenal host and facilitator. I'm, I'm very impressed. And I feel, I feel very seen in how you show up as a host and an interviewer. So thank you mm -hmm. for, for, for doing that. So I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, second thing is, uh, I know we, we've briefly talked about this, but if there's anybody out there who, who sees themselves as a thought leader, who wants to build a profitable personal brand, whether you're a successful entrepreneur um, and you, know, you're, you want to create an impact now, income is not a problem for you, but you want to create an even bigger impact or whether you want some more help with uh, telling your story in a way that doesn't, you know, doesn't build an expensive hobby or you're still trading your time for money, um, just reach out to me. I'm, I'm an open book. I feel like I want to pay it forward. So you, the best way that you can reach out to me is if you follow me on Instagram at Yaya Bakar, that's Y-A-H-Y-A-B-A-K-K-A-R. Or if you want a free resource to help facilitate the your ability to become a better thought leader or a speaker, you can go to worldclassleader.com forward slash the letter Y. 
You got it, man. We'll link up to all of that in the show notes. And once again, thank you so much. And uh, a big hug to that baby. Enjoy every moment because before you know it, they're in college. I know. I know. Thanks, (laughs) man. I appreciate you, brother. Much love to you. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.